passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. For the rest of us, uh, we'll be in 1 Samuel again this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 22. We've been working our way through the book of 1 Samuel this year, and uh, we're, we're kind of in the home stretch now. And uh, one of the things that I have really appreciated over our time in 1 Samuel is not just how well it fits in to the story of the Bible as a whole, but really how it centers on the person of Jesus. As we've been working our way through 1 Samuel, uh, we, we've really seen our sermon series title um, be proven true time and time again. 1 Samuel is all about the people of Israel looking for the true king. They're looking for not just a king, but, but the true king. And the book of 1 Samuel starts during the time of the Judges. The, the time of the Judges is summed up at the end of the book of Judges with this phrase, In those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we see at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel this need for a king, but not just a, a need for a king, you have to have the right kind of king. It's not good enough just to have a king. You want a king who will point you to the king of glory, God himself. And that's the basis for the contrast that we've seen in the book of 1 Samuel to this point. The contrast between Saul, who for all intents and purposes is a king like the nations, and David. David is not the perfect king, but he is a king who points us to the king of glory, to God himself. Saul, on the one hand, is opposed to God. He's not interested in the things of God. He actually replaces God rather than pointing people to God. And David, again, while not perfect, seems to grasp that the most important thing that he can do as a king is point people to God. And of course, this is where Jesus comes into play as we're reading through the book of 1 Samuel, that David, while he may be a good king, he, he may understand his role in leading the people toward God, but, but over and over, and we saw this last week in 1 Samuel, David fails. David falls short. And so while our gaze is, is drawn toward David as we're looking at the book of 1 Samuel, from there it is meant to go further and be lifted to Jesus, the true king, the king that we've been waiting for. And we see this over and over in the book of 1 Samuel. In Jesus, we see God's plan for a king fully realized, finally realized. It's all summed up in Jesus. This perfectly faithful king who points us to the king of glory, God himself. To borrow a, a turn of phrase from the book of, of Hebrews, as we're looking through 1 Samuel, we see that David is the shadow, but Jesus is the substance. That, that David is a shadow of the greater reality that is to come in Jesus. And as I've been looking at 1 Samuel chapter 22 in preparation for, for this morning, that shadow and substance contrast between David the shadow, Jesus the substance, the reality that this is pointing toward, I, I think that's, that's the heart of this passage. 
That while it's, this is a passage about David, it's, it's more a passage about Jesus. If you have your Bible open and you see like even the, just the header of 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 6 through 20, or, yeah, 23, you'll see this is a horrific passage. It's a terrifying one. It's a terrible one. It's, it's this passage where Saul slaughters the priests of God. And we begin to realize that not only is this a passage about the, the shadow that David is pointing us to Jesus, but also that Saul is a shadow as well in this passage. But he's not a shadow of Jesus. He's a shadow of the great enemy of our souls. The book of 1 John tells us that we shouldn't be surprised by this. 1 John is describing the great enemy of our soul, Satan, the Antichrist, when he will one day come. He's going to reveal himself. But until that day, we should know that there are many Antichrists, many people who are opposed to the mission of God, to the people of God that have already come. And this is true throughout history. We see this in 1 John chapter 2. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Don't get caught up in that word antichrist, and, and it just really means what it says, antichrist. It's against Christ, against Christ's people. And in that vein, Saul is one of these antichrists in the same vein that, that Pharaoh was in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, slaughtering the people of God. He's opposed to the people of God. The same thing that we see from Haman in the book of Esther, trying to slaughter the people of God. The same thing that we see from King Herod at the beginning of Matthew, trying to slaughter the people of God. The thing, same thing that we see throughout history with people who are opposed to the mission of God. It starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and goes to today. Those who are opposed to the mission and, and work of God in the world. And Saul is in that vein. Now, he may not be the great enemy of your souls, but he is an enemy of the people of God. Saul continues to oppose God. He continues to oppose God's plan. He continues to oppose God's people, leading to what we have here in 1 Samuel chapter 22, this, this unthinkable slaughter. And yet, in the midst of all of this tragedy, there is hope because of what we see at the end of this passage. The priesthood isn't fully, completely destroyed because one priest escapes, runs to David. Abiathar, he's the, the last remaining priest. He escapes the wrath of the enemy of God's people and he finds refuge in David. This chapter ends with a promise from David and I love the way the Christian Standard Bible translates verse 23. It says this, from David to Abiathar. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. For the one who wants to take my life also wants to take your life. You will be safe with me. This text runs or ends with, with Abiathar running to David for refuge, and David promises him that you will be safe with me. And how much greater is the promise of King Jesus to those who come running to him for refuge that you will be safe with me. 
I think that's the heart of this passage this morning. It's a promise from King Jesus to you that you will be safe with him. When the world around you rages, Jesus says you will be safe with me. And I hope that's the truth that sinks deeply into our hearts this morning because if it does, if we have this mindset that that there is safety, security in King Jesus, it transforms everything. This passage breaks apart into two sections. First, Saul, the enemy of God's people, and then second, David, the refuge of God's people. We'll go ahead and look at both parts of those this morning and then consider what God is teaching us through this text. Let's pray as we approach God's word. Father, your word declares that those who take refuge in the Son are blessed. And we ask that that would indeed be true this morning. We ask that you would be with your people as we seek refuge in your Son. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would strengthen our faith. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let me briefly remind you where we are in 1 Samuel. Last week, 1 Samuel chapter 21, the beginning of chapter 22, we see that David is on the run for his life from King Saul. He has gone to a number of different locations trying to escape Saul. He he even spends some time hiding out in Moab, this other country. By the end of of what we looked at last week in verse 5 of chapter 22, we see that David has returned to Judah. He's returned to the land of Israel. And Saul, as we see at the beginning of this passage, learns about David's return to the land. And that's where our text picks up in verse 6. Please follow along, starting in verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with a spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing around him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he be able to make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day." So the text opens with Saul berating his inner circle because he sees them as complicit in a coup to try to get rid of him. He claims that his son Jonathan and his son-in-law David are working together. They're out to get him. And and he says, you know what? Everyone here that's present in my inner court, you're in on the plan because you haven't told me about what is going on. And he assumes that the only reason his inner circle hasn't told him about this plot is because they were bought off by David. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is, it's not David trying to kill Saul, lying in wait to kill Saul. It's Saul who's trying to kill David. It wasn't Jonathan's plan that David would replace Saul as king. It was God's plan. And Jonathan has the wherewithal, he has the awareness to say, you know what, I'm going to join in God's plan, even if that means that I have to lose my claim to the throne as the heir to the throne. Based off of verse 7, where Saul is talking to his people here, we can assume that Saul, far from claiming that, that David is trying to buy off loyalty, Saul is really the one who's doing that. He's, he's made these promises to his inner circle of, of rank in the military and land. Saul, as we have seen time and time and time again in 1 Samuel, he's blind to reality. 
and he's blind because of his sin. He's hardened his heart against God. He's hardened his heart against God's ways. He refuses to submit to God's plan, and that leaves him paranoid. He assumes that everyone is out to get him. He throws a pity party for himself about how bad his lot in life is. Verse 9, then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse come to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So apparently no one in Saul's inner circle uh, speaks up when he starts com- complaining about them except Doeg. Doeg is an Edomite. He's not of the people of God. He's, he's outside of the promises of God. And, and we saw last week in chapter 21 that he was there when David runs to Nob, to the city of the priests. And, and Doeg now reports to Saul about what he saw while David was at Nob. And, and he seems to affirm all of, da- of Saul's suspicions about David, that David is trying to kill him. He tells Saul, hey, you know what, I saw, I saw him at Nob, and he was, he was talking with the priests, and everything that Doeg mentions can be taken in light of Saul's conspiracy, his paranoia about saying, you know what, yes, David is out to get me. The priest gave David an answer from God about military strategies, that the priest gave David food as provisions for his army. That the priests gave the sword of Goliath to David in order to arm him. Everything that he is saying is, you know what? Hey, 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 Saul, you're right. David is out to get you. And what's worse is the priests are in on it. The priests are trying to get rid of you as well. Verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob. And all of them came to the king. So Saul is convinced that the priests are a part of this conspiracy based off of the word of Doeg. He can't reach David quite yet, and so he's going to reach those that he can, and that is the priest. So he summons the entire priesthood. He says, hey, priests, I want you to come to me uh, here in Gibeah. It's about a two-mile journey from Nob to Gibeah, and this is an ominous sign because Doeg only mentions Ahimelech when he's talking about this conspiracy. And yet Saul says, hey, I I need you to bring all of the priests with you. And so 85 of them make the journey from Nob two miles to Gibeah. And as I read that, I think Saul has already made up his mind about what he's going to do. He's going to bring them, and and it's it's going to be vengeance from Saul for those who have crossed him. Verse 12, and Saul said, hear now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, Here I am, Lord, my Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and, an inquire, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Saul shows some pretty shocking contempt for the office of high priest here. High priest was the second most powerful person in the nation of Israel, right behind the king. And yet notice how Saul refers to Ahimelech. He refuses to even use his name. He calls him the son of Ahitub. And this speaks volumes about Saul's thoughts about God and about the faith. Saul thinks that the priests only exist to serve him, 
that there's no place for God in the kingdom of Saul because Saul functionally has replaced him. This is what we, we mean when we talk about a king like the nations, a king who doesn't point people to God, instead a king who replaces God, who remains firmly planted on the seat of their lives, the throne of their lives, refusing to, to bow the knee to God. The only one that matters in Saul's life is himself. It's not too strong of language to say that Saul sees himself as a God, that everyone exists to serve him. And so he confronts Ahimelech for crossing him and joining the so-called conspiracy of David. Verse 14. Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all of your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time I have inquired of, the, of God for him? No, let, the king not, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, either much or little. Ahimelech's response here is this masterful example of how to respond generously, graciously, winsomely in a difficult situation. Notice that Ahimelech doesn't contradict a single thing that Doeg says. He doesn't contradict a single thing that Saul says in his accusations toward him. But he does interpret the events very differently. In, in the face of all of these accusations about, hey, why did you do this? Or uh, you were there helping David, weren't you? And, and Ahimelech basically says, well, of course I was. Why wouldn't I? He's, he's your son-in-law. He's a part of your family. He's a part of your inner circle. He's one of your best military commanders. commanders. He's always been faithful to you. At the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 21, we saw that Ahimelech, when David comes to Nob, begins to tremble. I, I think he, he sees or suspects that there's this falling out between David and Saul, and yet Saul, or excuse me, David lies at the beginning of, of chapter 21, and, and that lie is enough to commit, convince Ahimelech. You know what? There isn't this, this schism between David and Saul. And so he says, sure, I'll go ahead and help David. There's, there's no problem in helping him. Now at this moment, as he's been brought before Saul, he realizes David lied to him. And he realizes, you know, this isn't going to go well for me, but I didn't do anything maliciously. I was operating with the information that I had. David told me that everything was good between the two of you, that he was on a secret mission from you. So he asked Saul, hey, I don't want you to associate me. I don't want you to associate the rest of the priesthood with this conspiracy, this so-called conspiracy from David. Verse 16, and the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me, but the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So Ahimelech makes this, this plea saying, hey, we didn't know anything about this conspiracy. Saul doesn't care. He's consumed with wrath and he will have vengeance on those who dare to oppose him. Ahimelech doesn't contradict anything that Saul or Doeg has said, but Saul refuses to consider his interpretation of events. If anything, 
Ahimelech bringing up the faithfulness of David makes Saul even angrier. And so Saul declares that Ahimelech and all of his family will be put to death for treason. There's just one problem. He's making this declaration based off of one thing, the testimony of Doeg. But in the law, in God's commandments, this wasn't enough. Deuteronomy says this, Deuteronomy chapter 19, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or, in any, for, or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So for any sort of accusation, punishment to be exacted upon Ahimelech and his family, there need to be another witness. Saul doesn't care. Saul only is concerned about himself, what he wants. And so in that case, he throws the law of God to the side for his vengeance. But Saul doesn't just want to take out his vengeance on Ahimelech. He wants to make Ahimelech pay for so-called crossing him. And so he's going to put the entire priesthood to death. And it's, it's hard to state for us today how unthinkable that is. How awful that would be. The priesthood was an integral part of worshiping God in the Old Testament. To get rid of the priesthood was to cut yourself off from God himself. And that is why Saul's inner circle refuses to move. They can see that Saul and his, his, his slight was, is unsubstantiated. And they know that to strike the priest is to strike God himself. And so they refuse to move. Verse 18. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put to the sword. Saul's inner circle refuses to act putting their hands against the priest. Doeg has no qualms with killing the priest for Saul, and so he slaughters all 85 of them that are present in this moment in Nob, or excuse me, in Gibeah, and then he goes to Nob to put the rest of the city to death. And he spares no one. He kills everyone, even the livestock. And there are two parallels here in this passage that I think are, are supposed to, to capture the significance of Saul and Doeg in this moment. The first one is all the way back in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 4, the ark is captured in this battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. It's judgment upon the people of Israel for their disobedience. They're not following God. After the Philistines capture the ark, they actually journey all the way to Shiloh. Shiloh is the city of the priests in chapter 4, and they destroy the entire city. After Shiloh is destroyed, the people who escape, they go to Nob and they reestablish the city of the priests. So by this point in the story of 1 Samuel, the only other time the city of priests has been destroyed is by the Philistines, the enemies of God's people. And yet now we have Saul destroying the city of the priests. So what does that say about Saul? There's another parallel, even stronger. Chapter 15, 
1 Samuel chapter 15, God commands Saul to strike down the Amalekites. It's a form of judgment upon the people of Amalek for hundreds of years of terror, of putting innocent to death. And so God in chapter 15 tells Saul, I want you to put the people of Amalek to death. Don't spare anyone. Go ahead and look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But what does Saul do instead? Chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fat of calves and the lamb and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So chapter 15, Saul is commanded by God to completely destroy Amalek. Don't leave anyone alive, but he doesn't because he thinks he knows better than God. And my goodness, those, those sheep and those oxen, those fatted calves, they, they look really, really valuable, and he'd be ashamed to put those to death. Instead, we're going to just go ahead and add that to what we have going on here in Israel. And Agag, we don't really want to put him to death either because that's a trophy of my, Saul, my ability to conquer anyone. He thinks he knows better. And so he refuses God's command to put everyone to death. And then we get here, and Saul puts everyone to death. And he does it to the priests and the people of Israel. Remember what I said earlier, Saul has set himself up in the place of God. At this point in 1 Samuel, Saul is operating like his own little God, and he slaughters the priests because they refuse to bend the knee to him. For decades, Saul has stubbornly refused to listen to God. He has ignored opportunity after opportunity to repent. He has exalted himself rather than God, and where does it leave him? as an enemy of the people of God, slaughtering the people of God. Thank goodness the text is not in there. We have a few more verses. After the atrocity of Nob, we see that there is hope. Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, escapes the destruction. He runs to David where he finds refuge. Verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Last week, we saw David run to Nob, and rather than relying on God, he relies on his own wits. He creates this lie in order to get away from Saul. And now we see the costly aftermath of David's deceit. David admits he had a part to play in the destruction of Nob, the destruction, the death of Abiathar's family. And yet also at the same time, he knows it is not ultimately his fault. It is the responsibility of Saul and Doeg. They are the ones who did this, not him. Psalm 52 is actually 
David's uh, reflections on this moment when he hears the words in verse 21 of the destruction of Nob. There in, verse, uh, in Psalm 52, he, he talks about how wicked Doeg is, and then he expresses a confidence that even in the midst of this tragedy, even in the midst of the injustice that was experienced by the priests, that God is just. And that he knows that one day God's justice will fully be realized. Notice the end of Psalm 52. It says this, But I, David, am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. You might be wondering what exactly he means by you have done it, that you have established your justice, God. And he says this, I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. David, as he is mourning the the destruction in Nob, expresses this confidence that God isn't done even in the midst of injustice, even in the midst of suffering, even in the face of tragedy, that God will take care of his people and the wicked will answer for their wickedness. You see the contrast between David and Saul here? While Saul slaughters the high priest and his family, David provides refuge for the new high priest from Saul. And he pledges to Abiathar that he will be safe. And he says, I will keep you safe even with my own life because Saul will have to kill me before he can get to you, Abiathar. You will be safe with me. What can we learn from this text? I, th- I can think of at least three ways that this text impacts us today. Let's just go ahead and, and consider these briefly. The first one is a very important reminder, and it's this. The Lord accomplishes his purposes through the desires of the evil. Evil men, evil women, God accomplishes his purposes through their evil desires. One thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that Saul's actions in slaughtering the priests of Nob are actually the fulfillment of a prophecy all the way back in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. Back in chapter 2, Eli is given this pronouncement of judgment because he refuses to address the wickedness of his sons. And so we have these words about judgment coming all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. It says this, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. All the way back in chapter 2, we see that there is judgment coming because of the disobedience of the priests. And everything that we see here in chapter 22 happens according to God's plans and purposes. And so we may ask, well, does that make God guilty of the evil of this chapter? Does this absolve Saul and Doeg from any sense of responsibility? Not at all. Because God accomplishes his purposes through the desires of evil men and evil women. 
It's important for us to remember that God is sovereign, and that means he is completely in control of both the good and the bad. And he uses the desires of evil men and women to accomplish his purposes all around the world, all throughout history. This is what God does. This is what God does at the cross. Consider Peter's words in the first Samuel or in the first sermon of the church in Acts chapter 2. He's speaking to the crowds at Pentecost. He mentions this very thing. It says this in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. How was Jesus killed? Well, Peter says that this happens, he was crucified by the crowds. He was killed at the hands of lawless men. That there is this very real evil desire from the Jews and the Romans to put Jesus to death. That they wanted to do it. That they delighted in killing Jesus. And yet, Peter also says... This is a part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That This is a part of God's eternal purposes. We have to hold both of these things to be true. It was a part of the crowd's plans, desires to kill Jesus. It's not as though they were coerced into putting Jesus to death, saying, you know what, we don't really want to put Jesus to death, but God's got a plan and we got to do what we got to do. No, they wanted to kill Jesus. They did exactly what they wanted to do. But because God is sovereign, he uses the evil desires, the evil actions of evil people to accomplish the greatest good in human history, the greatest good in the history of the cosmos. And the same is happening here. God is using the evil actions, the evil purposes of Saul, but it's all about his eternal plans I say, what exactly are those eternal plans? We see later what God is doing. This is a monumental moment in the shift of the kingship from Saul to David because from now on, the high priest, the priesthood is with David, not with Saul. That now, whenever David wants, and he's going to do this starting next week in the next chapter, Whenever he wants, through the high priest, he can ask God to guide him. He has a direct line to God. The awful actions of Saul here in this moment, trying to hold on to his kingdom, ironically further his own demise because of the eternal purposes and plans of God. And that's not just true of the big moments in, in history. It's, it's true for you, too, that everything, good and bad, God is working for the good of his children. This is what we see with Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 as he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He even says this. He says, what you intended for good or for evil, God meant for good. We see this throughout history. This is what God does. He takes what was meant for evil and he turns it into good. A lot of times we can't see it in the moment. A lot of times it takes years, sometimes decades, sometimes even centuries 
to see how God can take something that was intended for evil and turn it for good. That's true of the exile. The people of Israel were destroyed by the Assyrians and scattered across the known world as a part of the Assyrian re, um, repopulation plan. And so because of that, the people of Israel lost their claim to the land, but something good happened from that. There were these groups of Jewish people scattered all across the known world who for centuries began worshiping God in things called synagogues. And then finally, when God's eternal plans and purposes to spread the gospel came to fruition, there was this man named Paul, and he brought the gospel to those outside of Israel, and God had prepared the way. Every single place that Paul goes, he starts with the synagogue. Something that was evil from the Assyrians, a tragic moment in Israel's history. The scattering, the dispersion of the people of God sowed the seeds for the gospel to go forth. You may not know what God is doing in the evil of your life but you can be confident that God is doing something there. Another thing we see from this text, our enemy's wrath is great, but it is ultimately futile. This is one part of this passage that really sticks out to me. In spite of all of Saul's wrath, his attempts to hold on to the throne, all of it is ultimately futile. Everything that he does his wrath toward the priests. It's horrific. It's awful when finished. It's ultimately used by God to accomplish his purposes. And the same thing is true of Satan, the enemy of your soul. His wrath may be great, but it is ultimately futile. I love the words of Revelation 12. It says this, Woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Satan's wrath is great, but notice the second half of that sentence. It's because he knows that his time is short. The wrath of Satan toward the people of God is furious, and yet it is only the flailing of someone who knows that they have already lost. That the victory of God, the victory of God's people is inescapable. And while you may face the very real, the very painful brunt of the wrath of the serpent in this life, the victory of God is never in question. His victory over sin and death is never in doubt. The cross assures us that there is never a doubt that God is able and will keep his promises to his people. So when you face hardship, when you face affliction for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of Jesus' name, we can echo the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You might experience the wrath and the hatred of the serpent, but it is ultimately futile because the lamb has overcome. 
One final truth. You will be safe with Jesus. You will be safe with Jesus. That's the beautiful message of this text, that no matter what harm or hatred you may face, Jesus pledges to keep you safe. And just like David did to Abiathar, he does so with his life. He pledges his life to keep you safe. This world is full of uncertainty, but this is certain that you will be safe with Jesus. This message is a word of assurance for the global church, for the church that is suffering, for the church that is in in danger of losing their lives or their livelihood. It is so reassuring to hear Jesus say, you will be safe with me. You will be safe with me. I read from Romans 8 just a, a few moments ago. Romans 8 ends with this powerful reminder of the lengths to which God has gone to assure us that we are safe with him. That no matter what we may face, even death itself, if we are in Christ, we are safe and his forevermore. And so as we close... We're actually going to do something a little different. I'm going to invite you to stand. You can do that right now. And we're actually going to read together the end of Romans 8 as a reminder of this incredible truth that we will be safe with Jesus. Let's read together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. God, what a a promise that is that we can be safe with you. That there is nothing, no trial, no sickness, no evil power, no 
nothing that will ever come, no death that will separate us from the love of Christ. Thank you that we are safe with you, Jesus. We love you. We worship you. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.